0: Um, So what I want to bring your attention to this morning is the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 20, verse 22, we'll be coming on the tail end of what Ryan preached on last week, that is the Ten Commandments. Now you'll be tempted to come to our text this morning and try to get through it as quickly as your eyes can skim. It does seem to be in the shallow end of the drama pool considering the gravity of the book of Exodus, going from slavery and oppression, manifestations from the Lord, plagues, battles, miracles, clouds, food coming from the sky, and now a list of rules. And more rules and more rules and more rules and more rules. But don't, don't rush through these. Our text this morning is known as The Book of the Covenant, starting with the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 and going all the way through chapter 24 where the people of God say, we receive your law and we will do as you tell us to do. These are called the Book of the Covenant, filled with these judgments or these case studies and and seeing how the nation of Israel can apply the law that had just been given to them. The Book of the Covenant shows what God required of his people and that is distinction from all of the world. Distinct in how they worship, distinct in who they worship, distinct in how they live amongst one another, and also distinct in how they use the certain things that God has given them. This is how God has chosen to bring even more glory to himself, by having a redeemed people live a certain way that will cause the world to wonder about their God a pure lifestyle that's one of upward worship and outward love rather than what is happening all around the world, inward worship and inward love. So know this, when you come to a text like this, what we are seeing is God's people having been delivered from bondage and they're being called into worship. They're being called into worship the Lord who has done great things for them. And through them and now he's telling them a new official righteous way to live and we see this in the book of the covenant exodus 20 chapters uh or exodus 20 verses 22 through this morning chapter 23 verse 19 our text has three main parts i believe a distinct view of worship a distinct view of people and a distinct view of social responsibility I, i think at least in this first part and maybe first half of the book of the covenant, this is what God is calling to his people to have is a new view of worship, a new view of people, and a new view of social responsibility. And I hope that you'll place yourself in the drama of this often overlooked text and want what the text wants, a perfect follower and mediator and a fulfilling giver of love. Now, there are obvious questions that come to our mind when we read a text like this. What in the world do some of these things mean what are we supposed to do with these old ancient laws in our lives today well like i said before these are like case studies for the ten commandments not an explanation of the ten commandments but an implication in some cases an application of some of the ten commandments Implications of justice being rolled out in study form because this new nation now has the ability to to have somewhat examples or concrete implications of when things happen to them, they know how to react. Or when people do things against them and they want to do certain things back to those people, the Lord regulates their hearts by telling them how far to go and how near to stay. Now, understanding the place of this law in redemptive history is is helpful. These laws were given to people at a different time and in a different culture. Some seemed designed to avoid any confusion with other religions, but, but we don't have that confusion today, and some of these laws talk about things like debt due to poverty and And we don't really think about debt due to poverty, we think about debt in terms of building equity. So you might not think about debt in how little money you have, but you might think about debt in buying a new house or applying for a college loan. Now all of these laws come to us in a different stage of redemption. The covenant that we're looking at isn't the covenant that we live under today. I would encourage you to go listen to Ryan's sermon from last week, especially under under this call in the last half of the text where he explains the old covenant and the new covenant and how Jesus fulfilled the law but Jesus calls the covenant that we live under the new covenant the old covenant longs for the new and the new covenant longs for the understanding of the old so we can't just jump over the old covenant going well we didn't live 3,000 years ago so it doesn't mean anything for us today we've got to understand to whom it was written to and for what it was written for I want to bring up that I used whom in the right way just then, and that will impress my English teaching sister. The old covenant longs for the new, and the new covenant longs for the understanding of the old, so we shouldn't jump too far ahead. Some things you see in our passage were to be literally followed by those who said they would keep The covenant, as they said in chapter 24, but these literal obediences are shown through the richness of the new covenant's showcase of God's love through the Spirit imprinting the law of Christ on our hearts by the work of Christ on the cross. So for us, we see the law of Moses being replaced by Jesus in the Spirit by the will of the Father, yet we still must look at these laws. And we can view these laws in light of the approaching promised land. Or we can view these laws in light of Christ's resurrection in order how to see them most faithfully. Or we can view these laws in light of how God gave them to these particular people. Because viewing and knowing that the law reveals God's unchanging will actually helps us understand the God behind all these laws. So to go into the first point, let me read to you the text or at least the first part of the text from Exodus 20, starting in verse 23, and I'll read through verse 26. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So here we see the first kind of case of the Lord revealing how he wants his people to live. And by doing so, he gives them A distinct view of worship. A distinct view of worship is in mind when we see this text from verses 22 through verses 26 of chapter 20. This section of the law is about the altar that must be built for them to rightly worship God. God is forming a distinct way for them to view him and to worship him. An altar was the place for sacrifice and worship their God is to be worshipped only in the way that he desires and requires. He outlaws idols right from the start because it's so easy for them and even for us to place idols either intentionally or accidentally in between us and him. He outlaws idols of silver or gold to be crafted because he is spirit. Uncarved stones made from the earth With no elaborate staircase or steps are to comprise his altar. The emphasis on this is the simplicity of God, the purity of God, and the using of pure creation to worship the real creator. This section highlights the exclusive allegiance that the Lord demands of his people. And what we see here is is this constant tension that's being placed in Exodus and also the constant tension that's being placed in our lives. We all love the idea that in the Exodus, these slaves under bondage were brought into freedom. But it wasn't just that they were brought into freedom, but how we should read the book of Exodus is that their allegiance was changed to the oppressive slave masters of Egypt, now to a wonderful, good, and gracious God. It's not that you can just go into life when you are under the care of God and you're like a kid at the playground with no parents around. You can do literally whatever you want on the playground. But rather when God brings people out of darkness and into his light, it's their allegiance that's being transferred here and he wants his or their allegiance to be placed on him through worship. And in addition to all of this, verse 24 and 26 forecasts the most likely way in which the Israelites would fail in their obligation to love God. By worshiping other things or other gods. They would soon show that they were much like the Egyptians that they were brought out from. All those plagues that we talked about months ago we about different things that the Lord was smashing in order to humble the Egyptians and showcase his glory to his own people. And he's saying right from the beginning that he is exclusively theirs to worship. So what does God reveal about himself through this? How can we look at this kind of law, this old, old written word? Well, I think within looking at the words, we see the God behind the words. If you look at verse 22, we see that he is a heavenly God. He is outside of us. He cannot be controlled by us, but speaks and guides from heaven. Just pondering that or thinking about that is something that we are often not used to doing because we have so much of the world just at our fingertips. None of us have been to the moon, but we can see the other side of the moon, we we can go to museums and see the rocks that came from there or or if you have family that lives on the other side of the ocean you can see them all the time and here we recognize that that the lord who is speaking and commanding his people is one of a heavenly god or verse 23 we see that he's the only true god and that he's a jealous god he's not to be compartmentalized He's not to be used by them, or maybe even used by us, and that we want to summon God when we want certain things from him, like he's a magic genie. And he's not to be downplayed on any level. He he speaks of exactly what he wants and how exactly he is to be worshipped. He is excellent and glorious and awesome, and he must be worshipped exclusively. And we also see in verse 24 and 26, or 24 through 26, that he's worthy of our worship he's worthy of their worship here's the Lord speaking to Moses on the other side of the sea the one who delivered these people from captivity Moses and this nation are delivered and blessed people and in God's kindness in his mercy the worship of him comes after his exceptional deliverance of them from bondage to oppression the worship of him isn't, isn't how they got out of Egypt, but because he brought them out of Egypt, they can rightly worship him and give themselves over to him. So with that being the case of understanding what this text says about itself and then seeing the Lord behind the text, what must we now think about worship? Well, we should think about worship in an exclusive manner. That God alone is to be worshiped. Don't know why, but again and again and again through the book of Exodus, I've been led to think around in my life and seeing stuff or people or shows or clothes and activities or even ambitions and thinking to myself, am I first and exclusively worshiping God? Or am I often obsessing over something that has not commanded me to worship it? So we should think about worship and understand that we should exclusively worship God. Second, we should expectantly worship God. We should expectantly worship God. This this kind of worship was planned out for them. With plans, it was executed. God called them to worship him in a certain way, and they were called to do it. And as God's church and as Christ's bride, we're called to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the question for all of us is... Is that our sole aim? Is that our everyday expectation? That we wake up or we look forward to gathering with the saints on Sunday and expectantly worship the Lord. If we're tempted to go above or below this, we're, we're disobeying and defaming the one who delivered his people from darkness. So we should worship him with expectation according to his plans for us. And lastly, we should worship him with effort. When you think about all that's involved, in just these couple of verses, it took time, it took materials, it took obedience, it took sheep and oxen, it took a new place in their lives to worship him for who he is and for what he promises for their good. So as a delivered person, as a saved person Christian, a separated person, a distinct person from the world, do you and do I worship the lord with great effort with great zeal with great desire and great devotion i haven't been to my alma mater's college football game in a really long time but tailgating is really fun and for some reason if it's a 6 p.m game i'm getting ready for that game at like 8 or 9 a.m i'm checking the weather I'm making sure I've got everything in place. We have our parking tickets or we know where we're going to park and Uber from far away to the stadium. We know who we're going to hang out with. We know what we're going to eat. We've budgeted things so we can buy a lot of food within the stadium. And that's just before it even starts. It's amazing how much effort we put into things that we accidentally worship in front of the Lord. And so I think our text drives us to think about him as our exclusive God... And to think about worshiping him with great expectation and also with great effort. Remember what he did for you and what that cost, his son's death. And so we see here a distinct view of worship within the text, within this law. Secondly, we see a a distinct view of people. I'll just read, from, read for you a couple of select verses. You can look at them with your eyes if you have a copy of the Bible. They'll be on the screen, but if you have a copy of the Bible, you can kind of see in what context they're in. So in this part, I'm looking at chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 17. But chapter 21, verse 2 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Verse 3, if he comes in single, he should go out single. And if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Another section of verses in verse 13 of chapter 21. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place for which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another or kills him by cunning, then you shall take him from my altar that he may die." Or chapter 21, verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Or Exodus 22, verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So, so here we have a selection of, of this is where it seems to get very complicated or it makes us want to go through this passage in a more quick fashion because we look at some of these and go, man, I, I understand what that's saying. If you, if you talk bad about your mom or dad, whoa, 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 they get to kill you. <laughs> or, if, or if you lend something to someone and it, and it hurts someone else, then you have to pay those damages. Well, that makes sense. Or, or even if you are a slave for someone or a bond servant for someone, and you come in and you find a wife through that process, then, then that person gets to leave with you. For she's free too. Some of these things are perplexing to us, and these are social rules or social judgments that could be used and would be used in a legal setting for this new nation. Culturally, they're seen through the lens of of how God values human life and how they too should value humans. You've got to realize that if all of a sudden all hundreds of us went to a new place and we're going to establish a society, we would have to start out with some measure of what is valuable and what is not valuable. Or, Or if something happens to a valuable person or a valuable thing, how do we decide what the penalty is for that? And here... Some of what we get to see is is how God places a very high value on human life. Now think about how liberating this would be for the Israelites to read. Their God, who brought them out of Egypt, views them as people under his good rule, not people delegated to certain classes where they'd be treated judiciously different because of their class. But God sees humans as humans and so humans should see other humans as fully human. God designed it to reflect and proclaim his distinctiveness and his values to the surrounding nations so this nation of Israel these new people are to look and act different and so God supplies them with a law of if they're ever confused or they don't know what to do he's giving them these commands of how they can treat one another. And they can treat one another with justice and with mercy and with fairness. Now, just going through a couple of these sections, the first one, maybe the most perplexing to us as Americans, is concerning slavery in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The personable laws follow the religious laws, just coming before, and begin in the area of which the Israelites would be most likely to go astray. That is, they would be most likely to go astray and not love their neighbor as themselves. So we have indentured servants, or what our text says, as slaves, the most vulnerable part of society. Indentured service differs markedly from forced labor or human trafficking, and even those forced labor or human trafficking were also outlawed. We see that God would forbid this in verse 16, but here we have the the careful treatment of those who are entrusted for you for economic gain, or those indentured servants, Israelites sold themselves and or their family members into such arrangements to survive extreme financial crisis. So if my family was in great debt and I just could not work my way out of it, I might sell myself to another family or a farm or, or I will work for them for a certain amount of years and, and under these laws and under these conditions, I can have as a new redeemed and bought person I can have the assurance that on the seventh year I'll be let go or that I won't be caught by a master and held there forever and ever and ever like we agreed for seven years and on the seventh year I'll let you go but you know now I mean you're a really good worker and I want to build another barn so I'm actually going to keep you for longer and you can't do anything about it those would have been laws outside of Israel but here we're given laws of outward fairness The legislation intends to prevent exploitation even though some Israelites might ignore it. We see this later on in Jeremiah. Significantly, to have this material protecting the rights of servants rather than chiefly those of their master makes the legislation distinct from the world around it. It's fascinating to see where where it might seem bizarre to us to even write things down like this. No one would post this on their Facebook today. But, But here, these Israelites would see this as, oh, we are, we're not only worshiping an exclusive God, but, but we're worshiping one who treats human people fairly from the outset. And, and though we might be given over to our sinful desires, or though we might exploit people, either on purpose or accidentally, there are laws that he's given his people so that we can't fall into that trap. These suggest that these servants would be treated as human beings rather than mere property, like what they just came out of. Another section we see concerning humans hurting other humans. In verse 21, verses 12 through 32, Some sins, according to these laws, required the death penalty for Israel. These included willful murder or the murder or cursing of one's parents and the abduction and enslavement of an individual. Other offenses, such as quarreling and striking a person, or one slave, or a woman carrying a child were also accounted for in these. So, so these were expansive laws and case studies for people to evaluate how they can treat people because God is giving them a distinct view of people that they're either not used to and also different from the world around them. Even knocking out a slave's tooth involved penalties. Penalties or attacking livestock, or when livestock would be hurt. The cases mentioned here help illustrate the principles of some of the Ten Commandments and highlight particular applications for us. Now, verses 22 through 25 of this chapter are some of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament. Among them are for two reasons. Many find the biblical argument against abortion in verse 22, where if you strike a woman and she's pregnant... That child in the womb is recognized as a human being and also demands penalty from the state. Now, politically, I don't think this is necessarily where we should go to if we're trying to make an argument from the case of Scripture on on what Christians ought to believe about Scripture. Because if we start saying, hey, well, there's this one verse and you must apply it to today, then, then we also have to deal with all the other verses that we go, I don't know how to apply that to today. But either way, what we see in here is a legal, long-standing precedent that the Lord who created life recognizes it amongst his people from the beginning, both the value of a woman and the value of the person inside the woman. And even with that, the special care going into the detail of of not just large things like people as a whole, but, but if you knock over a woman and she's with child, there is a penalty for that too. Because that child is someone who is under the care of the Lord. Also we see in verses 23 through 25 the famous phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Life for life, bruise for bruise. This curtails retaliation by ensuring that punishment does not exceed the crime. It outlaws barbaric revenge and controls personal vendettas. So if you come to my house and you burn my house down, I'm going to want to do things to you that is much worse than burning my house down. Or if you come and punch my wife, I'm going to do things to you that is worse than punching you back. But here the Lord is, is setting justice on display that even to the case of if you remove an eye from someone, the penalty for that is also an eye for an eye. This is what is setting this nation apart of they are controlled people who worship the Lord and recognize people for who they are under the Lord's care. And so he's ensuring that living within this nation doesn't go beyond the point where it just breaks out in anarchy or havoc. The immediate and wider context suggests that Israel does not apply it literally in terms of personal injury, but that people make appropriate compensation for when wrong is done if you steal a thousand dollars from me, you owe me a thousand dollars. Concerning restitution also is at play here. We see this in chapter 21 verses 33 through chapter 22 verses 17, where now we're talking about uh, under the realm of people but payments and what constitutes value. Or if I do something against you, how must I repay you for the wrong that I did against you? Or if my animal hurt some of your things, then how am I to repay you with an animal that is still living? In some cases, the offenses were dealt with by restoration or a refund, paying the cost of the loss. And if someone's beast fell into your pit or well, you had to pay the cost back because your well or your pit caused harm on property that belonged to someone else. Or if your fire causes damage to a field, you must pay for the cost of the field. The cases illustrate that God is a just God and a God of order. This is is new to the world because they recognize that they are in charge of everything. And so they get to administer justice on, on whomever they want to administer justice on, and they can set any repayment of what they want. What God reveals about himself through this is also so encouraging and so striking because we see that that through these laws that God is establishing a kingdom that should rule itself through fairness and justice and financial restitution or repayment if necessary. His people are to reflect this towards one another and towards the world. Believers in the Lord should be those who aim for an eye for an eye or a thought for a thought. Or a deed for a deed. God's people should not be known by theft, theft but trust. Not harm, but goodwill. And so we see here that, that God, God highly values humans. This is reflected through these laws. Just the, just the pure placement of, of everyone. He's recognizing everyone in this new nation. Even those who might be normally oppressed outside this nation. He's recognizing them as human beings. And also, lastly within this text, what we can see about God is that God is very, very serious about sin. Sins committed against one another need to be responded to in fairness and met with measured equity, but they must be responded to. These laws were giving this nation cases that put value on things in a systematic way. And when you think about sins in the biblical context, when you think about your personal sins in a biblical context, meaning man to man, meaning you sinning against someone else, you need to know that it's actually a two-bird, one-stone type of offense. What the Lord is showcasing to the world through his people is that when you sin against someone else, you're also sinning against God himself. What we see in this context and then through the rest of the scriptures and all the way into the New Covenant, we see that wrong living comes from a bad view of worship or a false view of worship. And bad worship comes from a misunderstanding of redemption itself and the ultimate transfer of deliverance. In the scriptures, sin is, is often seen as an offense against a neighbor, but we must see it clearly as also a sense or also a sin against the Creator. And so there must be debt to be paid for our offenses, like a parking ticket that you might have, there's a fine for that. Or cheating on your taxes, there's a penalty for that. Or taking the life of someone else, there's a penalty for that too. But the payment or restitution is not just by the state or by the IRS or even by the city parking officer, but also by God. God will not stand for sin in his midst. It does not delight him, but rather it deters him from blessing them. Our sins are an offense against God. Now the laws in this section all relate to sins on people, whether intentional or unintentional, and prescribe the appropriate penalty for these sins to be matched. Here we can see a a small beginning to a long shadow to the cross of Christ where the severity of the punishment reflects the nature of the assault and the sin. About 20 years ago, there was a severe nuclear accident in the former USSR. A nuclear reactor at the Chernobyl power plant blew up in the middle of the night and immediately blame-shifting and cover-ups began. Bosses and subordinates were simultaneously doing, doing two things. They were trying to salvage... Europe from the point of nuclear chaos and they were wrongly trying to cover up their own tracks or cover up their own sins or or distracting people from looking at one thing so they wouldn't look at, oh, I actually pushed the button. And the more people tried to hide the truth of what really happened, more and more people's lives were now in lethal danger. And during the immediate recovery of the accident, there was one main scientist who did everything he could, even to the point of risking and losing his own life in order to put truth on the table. One of the lines that he said from his famous speech in a mock trial was haunting to me when I heard it weeks ago. He said, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. And sooner or later that debt will be paid. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth, and sooner or later that debt will be paid. No one was paying attention to the facts he saw, and sad and tragic from every angle was this event, but every lie that they told incurred a debt to the truth. And in hearing that, and also thinking about our scriptures this morning, we see time and time again sins that people would commit, or you and I recognize that sins that we have committed and each sin deserves a penalty to be paid. And it was fair. And the debts would not be unfairly reaped. Justice will be applied as it was applied through these laws at that time. A shadow extends here to our view of God's judgment, where sins, your sins and my sins, must be dealt with. And it will not be unfair. That's the most alarming thing about the, the truth of the gospel is that, our, is that our sins will be fairly administered and God's judgment will come down on our sins. But the question is, will our sins remain on us or will they be placed on Christ? So the reality of this text is seeing the gravity of the tension of when people do wrong against other people or when people do wrong in their worship or even when people do wrong in their things they are incurring a debt that must be dealt with maybe to put another way this phrase every sin we commit incurs a debt to holiness and sooner or later that debt will be paid now for christians we know and we recognize that that the debt for our sins was paid by jesus's death on the cross the the substitute for sin, to, to remembering this payment no more in this judicial system, longs for our understanding of the, Christ, of the cross where, where when we place our trust in him, our sins, it seems, and it shows, and it is, were placed on him on the cross. So that when God comes to us to establish the new heavens and new earth, judgment will not be poured out on us because it was already poured out on Jesus. And so the question for you, if you are not a Christian, do you recognize the reality and the truth that when you sin against someone, that's bad. And that must be repaid through paying a fine or through seeking forgiveness in some way, but also do you recognize that when you sin against someone, you actually sin against their creator? Jesus goes on and goes deeper from the Ten Commandments that we, that we have, whether it's don't steal or don't commit adultery or don't worship any other gods before me. He actually goes, don't just don't, just don't murder, but also if you have a murderous thought, that, that's the same thing. You're, you're sinning against someone else. And so if you see yourself as outside of Christ, you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you need to remember that all of the sins of your life and all of our lives incur a debt to holiness and it must be paid by someone. And do you think you can stand it? Try for a minute to withstand it or thinking about withstanding it. But take refuge, friend, in what is told to us in Psalm 86 and in so many other parts of the scriptures that for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And so in this archaic text, non-Christian, non-believer, you might see rules and laws and weird things and peculiar things, but, I, but what I hope you take away from this is that if you place yourself under that law, you realize that you have no hope because justice will come down on you, but you can call out to the Lord and he is good and forgiving and he's abounding in steadfast love. Look around you and see the distinction of the church or of Christians, how they, how they think about people and how they see the Lord and respond like they did by calling on the Lord for forgiveness of your sins and recognize how those sins were placed on Jesus on the cross. So how must we think about relationships in light of this second point? How must we think about relationships in light of the law? Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City has this great article. I don't know when it was written. I read it a couple years ago. And it talks about how every culture has has a unique economy of power. And he gives the example of how the East Coast has... The way that the East Coast views power might be through the job you might have or, or how powerful of a person that you associate with. My boss is the president of Goldman Sachs or I'm an intern for the U.S. government. Or, I make so much money every single year. And and when I think about power in terms of where it is culturally, I wonder if how we consider power in our culture, Albuquerque or the greater New Mexico area, I think that our economy of power is the knowledge that all of us have. So, you repair refrigerators, you have a knowledge that I very much need. You're an attorney. There are times where you must do things for me that I cannot do for myself. Oh, you work at the labs. You're literally a scientist. But power can be misused. And my caution to all of us is to place ourselves under the tension of this text in our area and recognize that we have some level of knowledge and that we should not use this power against people whether in your office or in your workplace or even in your home or in a meeting but to use what God has given us to bless others for the sake of his glory and for our neighbors to more fully know him and love him we all have been given amazing gifts and talents I don't care if you don't think you have it you do everyone here is like a genius I've recognized and do you use it for good Or do you use it to overtake people? And this law gives us instruction and inspiration to use what God has given us for his ultimate glory, not for our own kingdom, lest we become like Pharaoh long ago. Second, how do we think about relationships? We should be people who promote justice and extend mercy, seeing ourselves susceptible to sin and oppressiveness. We remember the phrase that power corrupts, And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's really what's behind the modern debate of of our modern debate of social justice, isn't it? One of the good things that's been happening is this giant, almost out-of-control debate of social justice is that it's caused more and more people to think through policies or regulations or rules And even personal relationships and how we treat other people in our lives, whether we're related to them or not related to them, aiming to realign ourselves with the God who from long ago was establishing a nation of justice, mercy, and true freedom from allegiance of oppressiveness to now an allegiance of Christ and to Christ. And this is when I think this really old, often overlooked text actually encourages us to be righteous to speak righteousness into the politics of today or to the economics of today or into the relationships of today. Not everyone needs to be a pastor or, or not everyone needs to be a banker or not everyone needs to be involved in the political sphere. But if you are inclined to do those things, you should and you should aim to promote righteousness and justice and mercy all around you. I recognize at an early age, because someone told me that the world needs good people wherever you decide to go. And what the Lord is doing through these laws is is sending his people out as agents of mercy and agents of justice and agents of generosity and care. Behind the laws of the old covenant is a merciful, generous, redeeming God who brings order from chaos and ultimately he brings a deliverer to undeserving sinners like you and me and deepens the meaning and the impact of the law by transforming hearts of those who believe by giving them a new heart and the spirit continually points them to the Lord's mercy and his grace and his goodness and so we must heed the the Lord's example himself where Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 5 he speaks of overcoming evil with good and that is possible only, only because we are sons of the Father who is in heaven. We belong to a heavenly Father who has overcome our evil with his good. And as we live out the richness of the gospel, we recognize that God does not repay his people as their sins deserve, but showers them with mercy and compassion. We're reminded of Psalm 103, where the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The steadfastness that these laws call for, the patience that they call for, the mercy that they call for, the graciousness that they call for. So he gives Israel a distinct view of people and its rich, but he also gives them a distinct view of social responsibility. A distinct view of social responsibility. Let me read a couple more verses from this last section, looking at chapter 22, verses 18, all the way now through chapter 23, verses 9. Exodus 22, verse 19 says, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Exodus 22, verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Or Exodus 22, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And lastly, Exodus 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So the meaning of God's instruction to his people through this is just quickly that sorceresses and bestiality and false sacrifices are ungodly and wrong. Now what's alarming about this is they would be naturally inclined to give themselves over to this. That's why these rules existed. So that when they are tempted to go this direction, they have guardrails to say don't do that. But also to distinguish them from the nations around them. That there is no other God except the one true God. That there are examples of who you can be with relationally. And also there is no need for false sacrifices. This text is also highly against oppression and unlawful or unethical loans. Immediately after these cultic laws and is a series of laws aimed at proper treatment of others through things whether Israelites or foreigners living within their borders. The first one concerns the, the mistreatment of oppressive or of the oppression of aliens. This, of course, is exactly what Israel was in Egypt. Aliens themselves, and the law makes the connection with that explicit. So they should, be tre- they should treat others like they should have been treated when they were in Egypt. Aliens were disadvantaged portions of the society, alongside widows and orphans, Having no husband or parent makes this person vulnerable to praying hands and oppression. This is why God's command is accompanied by this warning. Oppression of these people will not go unnoticed. God will hear their cry. And he will bring judgment on those who seek oppression of the weakest of them. Verses 25 through 27 are speaking about the proper treatment of the economic needy. If a, poor, if a poor man is loaned money, don't charge him interest. Don't charge your brother's interest. Presumably, the, the proper motive for lending money to the poor is to help one's neighbor and not make a tremendous profit out of it. It was customary to take a pledge and a loan or transaction as a form of collateral, but the fact that someone would give a cloak as a pledge rather than sleep warm at night, well, this nation needs to treat that person well and good. Don't take his cloak. Let him go to bed. Give him what he needs to wake up the next day. These laws highlight what we have seen throughout the book of Exodus, that God loves his people and he is protective of them against any abuse, including abuse at the hands of fellow Israelites. God's people must not become like the people they were saved from. And so he gives them laws to help them think through these actions. And then verse 28 forms the conclusion of this main section. By by a warning to the Israelites not to disregard God or the rulers. Because cursing the rulers that God has established is like cursing God himself. He talks about worship through offerings, through firstborn, and even the giving of yourself in holiness. He talks about that your testimonies in court ought to be true. Because why would anyone believe anything about God if they know that they can't believe you in court when you're supposed to be as truthful as you can possibly be? He talks about what to do with an enemy's animal or the oppression that continues throughout this section. Now maybe you have zoned out at this point. I see sleepy heads all around the room. Or maybe you think you've read them before. Maybe you'll say to yourself that you'll read them again. There are a lot of things here. And throughout the rest, or throughout the first five books of the Bible, we see that the Israelites consistently receive laws from God saying they will fully commit themselves to those laws and then they break them. And God's instruction to them leads to their willing rebellion. And like I mentioned earlier, man's sins wasn't just against man, but is also against God. And if you haven't seen this yet... Here's where I want you to see the aim of Moses' words. He is writing these words as God gave him these words. These words are given from the Lord for the blessing of God's people. And I think too often, I'm, I'm speaking with a mirror in front of me, I think too often we treat more easily applicable words in the scriptures much like we treat these hard to understand or hard to apply words. We think we get it or we think they don't apply to us or we wonder what they're there for or we're like, well, Paul lived a long time ago, so who cares? God's words are always for the building up of faith of God's people. You, you should see that the penalty for these sins are never overlooked and when there is a need for repayment, we're reminded of our need for a substitute by Christ. The law in the Christian is a trippy topic, tricky topic. Within Exodus, the book of the covenant is part of a group of concepts that, that dominate the book as a whole and dominate the Christian's life as well. Redemption, worship, obedience, always in that order. The Lord redeems his people, calling them to worship him and implants on them laws and rules to obey him with. And here are laws that govern Israel's conduct among themselves. The book of the covenant is one body of law in its entirety. And obedience to the law is something that God requires of all of his people. Not just so that they have something to do, but that they might have a right relationship with him. So when we think about what Christ tells us to do, or when we remember that the spirit is within us, we should aim for obedience, knowing that that is how God makes us Christ-like. A couple of weeks ago, I reread the book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Everyone should buy it and read it and then read it again and give it to someone else where the call towards holiness is often overlooked because we think so little about God's spirit. But the call to the holiness, the call to Christ-likeness is what we were purchased for. And it's a sweet thing to to keep your eye on the prize of Christ, recognizing that everything else will lead you astray. When all is said and done, when we read the book of the covenant, the first thought that pops into our minds is, how do I bring these laws into my life, or how do I follow them today? And rather than that, I think the, the first thing that we should think is, now I better see how God dealt with his people soon after the Exodus. He dealt with them with justice and with mercy, and with love, and with care. The book of the covenant should be seen through two lenses. God's law comes after God's redemption. It's not the door to get in, but the living room. And it's not also a burden, but a blessing to God's people. So it's after redemption and it's for their blessing. And as most Christians understand, what constitutes proper behavior is more often than not a matter of spiritual wisdom and Christian maturity rather than having an exhaustive manual to cover each scenario. And most important, as with the Israelites, the Christian's view of the law must first be rooted in the knowledge of what God has already done. Apart from the law, he has called us from darkness into his light so when we think about passages like this, the tools that we must have is this isn't a prescription of how we live, lest you have an ox. Nor is it necessarily a, a root form of principles that well, because this law is kind of like this. I think I should understand it a little bit in my context today, but rather the the laws give us a proper hope of the one who came to redeem his people, who paid a full substitute for their lives, knowing that they couldn't pay it for themselves. So we see a, a, a small casting of a long shadow of Christ's love for his people. So when we look at the law, we should love it. Because ultimately of what the law brings us. The one who fulfilled it for our eternal lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every word that you have given. We pray that you would give us greater understanding of your word as it was given to its people, so that we may be more like your perfect and holy son. We we pray that this would cause us to worship you like you demand in spirit and truth. We pray that this would cause us to think about people the way you think about people, that they are image bearers of your goodness, made in the likeness of you, and also that that we might be encouraged to live a certain way that reminds people of you, Your justice, your mercy, your goodness, your forgiveness, your care, your patience, and your love. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, calling on you to help us understand it and imply it for your glory. Amen.